Good morning. Am I correct in saying there's children's church today? There is children's church today, so ages 2 to 6 can head downstairs. Let's open up in prayer. Jesus, we recognize that you're already here with us through the Holy Spirit, that you're already present in this room. Help us to feel that, to understand it, to recognize it, um, to engage with it. That as we explore Ruth uh, and the story you have given us in your word, this small story with big implications, I pray that we'll be able to connect with it, that uh, we will see ourselves in this story, that we'll recognize the ways in which you are working in our lives and our situations, just as you worked in Ruth's. Help us to have our eyes open, our ears ready to hear, as we step into this story once again. In your name, amen. So last week, uh, we started a series on the book of Ruth, this sort of four-chapter short story uh, in the middle of the Old Testament, this little narrative about these two women, uh, Naomi and Ruth, and we recognize that while these are real things that happen to real people, it's also true that it's been sort of purposefully uh, constructed and arranged by the author of the book to very carefully draw the listener in, to create this journey from tragedy to triumph. It sets up obstacles, and then it makes us wait to see how are things Uh, going to be resolved. It's the sort of thing that's designed to be experienced as a journey. And so we started to walk through this book one chapter at a time, very intentionally not jumping ahead to the end of the story, but instead focusing kind of on where we're at in this place, in this chapter, and allowing things, allowing this story uh, to sort of naturally unfold Uh, over these four weeks. And so before we get going, what I want to do is very quickly remind you about where we left off. So last week, we met Naomi and her family, her husband, Elimelech, and their two boys. And this family, because of a famine in the land, because in the city of bread in Bethlehem, there was no bread, they are forced to move into, if not exactly enemy territory, then at least a very foreign land, a very uncomfortable place to be. And over the next 10 years... Elimelech, Naomi's husband, passes away. Her sons marry Moabite women, and then her sons both pass away. Everything goes wrong. It's tragedy after tragedy, and so heartbroken with nothing left, Naomi returns home, intending to leave behind her daughters-in-law so that they can start new lives. But Ruth, in this beautiful, powerful speech, clings to Naomi and refuses to leave. So the two of them head back towards Bethlehem, both with nothing left, both leaving the lives that they had known. And like any good story, this first chapter does a great job for us of setting up the stakes of the story. We have our main characters, Naomi and Ruth, and we understand what they need, what their goals are, what they're looking for. They need food, 
and they need family. They need somebody to take them in. There are these two widowed women, and they need a place where they can belong. So there are these two things, food and family. How are they going to be sustained, and where do they belong, these outsiders coming in? We also spent a fair bit of time last week talking about uh, the context of the book, how the Jewish people, how the Israelites, through their history, have interacted with this story. And they read it at the festival of Pentecost, which for the Jews is a celebration or the remembrance of Mount Sinai, Moses bringing the Ten Commandments down, this reestablishing of covenant and connection between God and his people. And so because of that, when we read Ruth, we can see a story that reinforces the themes, the ideas behind Pentecost. And that theme, when boiled down, is this. This is the slide that we looked at last week. In this interplay between election and covenant, the idea that we are chosen by God, and because of that, our choices matter. They have consequence. And in this, it means there is no longer any such thing as a small story or a small choice. Everything has meaning and purpose and even the simple stories, even the story of a Moabite, an outsider coming in with nothing, no land, no family, no prospects, even her story and her choices have significance. They matter to the big story that God is writing. I was watching the Jets game yesterday afternoon, and Scotiabank has been advertising this Hockey 24 documentary, this, uh, this big documentary where they're going out to all these different towns uh, to film sort of different hockey stories, and they showed a clip from that project, or sort of a promotion for that project about a coach training program uh, up in northern Canada somewhere. And it began uh, with a short paragraph on the screen which read something like, the story of hockey in Canada isn't just one story. It's millions. But here is one of them. And I thought, what a perfect description uh, for the story of Ruth, or for any of our stories. The story of God moving in the world, the story of our connection to our Creator, the story of lives changed and transformed by God, by our Savior who has chosen us, is not just one story. It's billions of stories. But here's one of them. And mine is one of them. And yours is one of them. These stories are all a part of this large story. And my hope is that we go through this series. What is happening is that you are able to connect with your own story and with the stories of the people around you. The stories in the Bible and these big, small stories of God working in and through people, that these stories are worth telling and that these stories are worth hearing. So one last piece of setup before we jump into chapter 2, back into Ruth. There's a phrase uh, in Hollywood or in the movie business uh, that refers to a specific kind of uh, encounter that happens. Uh, It happens in all sorts of movies, but it's really a staple of the romantic comedy. It's one of my least favorite Devices or tools that movies use because it feels so terribly unrealistic. Aaron loves these things. I cannot stand them. I roll my eyes every time it happens. It's called a meet-cute. A meet-cute. It's a term for when two people meet for the first time in some cutesy way and and, and sparks fly immediately and it's a match made in heaven. They, they, They go to the coffee shop and they get their drink orders mixed up. 
and it's, oh, you, you like double-doubles too? I like double-doubles. Me too. What's your number? We, we should get coffee sometime. Oh, we already have coffee. Ha, 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 ha. <laughs> and then they go and get married or whatever. Or, or, or she trips on the sidewalk and he pulls her back just before a car is about to hit her and they end up in this like dancing dips or just smiling awkwardly at each other. Or they bump into each other and all the important papers go flying and they're trying to sort them all and their hands touch and they're like, oh. <laughs> These sudden kind of love moments. I can't stand them. Life doesn't happen this way. All these coincidences lining up and everything just going exactly right. And all of a sudden the love of your life just walks into frame and there you are. It's instant chemistry. It's ridiculous. And yet, here in Ruth, we get our own little kind of romantic comedy meet cute. In fact, the author here, we're going to pay a bit of attention to this, how the author sets it up. Because they're intentionally having some fun with this. There is some humor in this chapter. Uh, which can get a little bit lost in translation. So just like last week, we're going to take time to walk through this chapter and sort of experience the story. So I encourage you to get out your Bibles or your phones and read along with me, starting at Ruth chapter 2, verse 1. Now, Naomi had a relative on her husband's side, a man of standing from the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. So the first chapter was all about Naomi and Ruth and their journey and this question of food and family, right? Food and family. What are they going to eat? Where are they going to belong? And at the beginning of the second act, the second chapter, we get introduced to this third character. This is a sort of an enter knight in shining armor moment. Boaz, who is a man from the clan of Elimelech, Naomi's husband. Now, the societal structure in Israel was that you had your family, and you have your clan, and you have your tribe. And in many ways, from a legal standpoint, the clan was probably the most significant of these people groups. There were responsibilities that you had to your kin, to members of your clan. And so this Boaz is from the same clan as Elimelech. And that's great news, and even better news is that this Boaz is a man of standing. Now, it could be referring to the fact that he was wealthy, which he certainly was, but more likely the author here is referring to Boaz's character. He's saying Boaz is here, he's a member of the same clan, and he's a good man. Verse 2, And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, Let me go to the fields and pick up the leftover grain behind anyone in whose eyes I find favor. Naomi said to her, go ahead, my daughter. So, just again, very quickly, there was a Levitical law that had been set up to provide for those who had no land or couldn't fend for themselves or provide for themselves. Uh, in Leviticus 23:22, it says, when you reap the harvest of your land, do not reap all the way to the edges of the field or gather the gleanings of your harvest. Leave them for the poor and the foreign resident. And Ruth is both of these things. So it's sort of a known provision in Old Testament law. That's not to say that all field owners did this. In fact, it could be a very dangerous thing for Ruth to do because foreigners were often treated poorly or even attacked by workers in the field. It could be very, very dangerous. But the law did exist for this purpose. So verse 3, she went out and entered a field and began to glean 
behind the harvesters. As it turned out, she was working in a field belonging to Boaz, who was from the clan of Elimelech. What a coincidence, the author says. As it turns out here, this is a tongue-in-cheek phrase. It's saying, as luck would have it, here Ruth is working in the field by Boaz. And in a romantic comedy, I'm going to watch this and I'll roll my eyes. But maybe I shouldn't be so quick to dismiss it because as much as I go, it doesn't work that way, this is not how it happens in real life, it turns out that when God is involved and when we have been chosen and when our choices are a part of a larger story, when God is working things together for good, it can work this way. It does work this way. These sorts of things do happen. Ruth, as it turned out, was working in Boaz's field. Actually, as I looked at this chapter prayerfully, as I prepared, what began to happen to me was I started to think back on situations or times in my life where, as it turned out, the right things clicked into place. In fact, I can look at my journey here to lead pastor in this church, and the whole story is filled with these sorts of moments. Jesse and Aaron were living in Altona, and it just so happened that a youth position opened up in a nearby community. And as it turned out, they had friends who were building a house and wanted to rent out their basement suite. And as luck would have it, when Jesse decided not to continue in school to be a teacher, there were additional leadership opportunities at the church. And who could have guessed that his job at Freezes was going through a transition that allowed Jesse to slip into a flexible part-time role? And on and on it goes. And so as we go through this chapter... And as we insert ourselves into this story and see things through Ruth's eyes, my hope is that our eyes are going to open up to all of the it-just-so-happened moments in our lives. It's my firm belief that all of us have it-just-so-happened stories. That all of us have many of them. And I'm hoping that some of you will be willing to share these at evening sessions, at these God in the Ordinary sessions. It can be as little as two sentences, or as two minutes, or however long it needs to be, but all of us have a story. And I think that sharing that story in the context of community is going to be a huge blessing for us as we hear, and actually also a huge blessing for you as you put into words the as-luck-would-have-its and the it-just-so-happens in your life, to see where God is moving. And what's kind of fun about Ruth is that it doesn't even stop there. The coincidences keep on coming. Verse 4, just then, Boaz arrived from Bethlehem and greeted the harvesters. The Lord be with you. The Lord bless you, they answered. Boaz asked the overseer of his harvesters, who does that young woman belong to? And uh, the original translation from Hebrew for that, I think, is check her out. And the overseer replied, she is the Moabite who came back from Moab with Naomi. And this author, as he does all through the book, he doesn't let us forget about the cultural tension here. Who does she belong to? Well, she doesn't belong to anyone. She's the Moabite who came back from Moab. She came back with Naomi, but throughout the whole story, it's always Ruth from Moab. Ruth the Moabite. Like, Imagine if every time I talked about Kyle, it was Kyle the Morrisite from Morris. Have you met Kyle? Yeah, he's from Morris. He's a Morrisite. And on drums today, we have Kyle from Morris. 
Did you know that Kyle, the Morris resident from Morris, is here? He's from Morris. It's just shoved in our face over and over and over again. We're constantly reminded of her outsider status. It's a constant reminder that Ruth is on the lowest rung of the social ladder. In fact, she's not even on the ladder. She has no rights. I'm not talking about Kyle anymore. This is... <laughs> so what does Boaz do with this information that this Moabite woman is taking his grain? Verse 8. So, Boaz said to Ruth, My daughter, listen to me. Don't go and glean in another field, and don't go away from here. Stay here with the women who work for me. Watch the field where the men are harvesting, and follow along after the women. I have told the men not to lay a hand on you, and whenever you are thirsty, go and get a drink of water from the water jars the men have filled. So that statement, stay here, is the same word again as cling from that first chapter. Cling to me, cling to this field, to this group. You are a part of us. You are a part of this. And Boaz is extravagantly, over-the-top generous, especially that line about being thirsty. Traditionally, men worked in the fields. Women were the ones who were expected to fill the jars. Women were the ones who were expected to bring water. Women served the men here who were working. And no woman, not even one from the family, one that worked there would normally go to drink from a jar that men had filled. That was for the men. So to say this to this outsider woman, this Moabite from Moab, that whenever you are thirsty, go and get a drink from the water jars that the men have filled. The original hearers of this story, in that context, in that culture, their jaws would have been on the ground. It was extravagantly generous. So we're going to start moving a little bit quicker through the chapter now, but what I want you to be listening for and paying attention to is the ways in which Boaz becomes a provider for and a protector of Ruth, how mercy and grace plays out over these next conversations. Verse 10, at this she bowed down with her face to the ground. She asked him, why have I found such favor in your eyes that you notice me, a foreigner? Boaz replied, I've been told all about what you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband, how you left your father and mother and your homeland and came to live with a people you did not know before. May the Lord repay you for what you have done. May you be richly rewarded by the God, by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. May I continue to find favor in your eyes, my Lord, he said. You have put me at ease by speaking kindly to your servant, though I do not have the standing of one of your servants. And here the story skips ahead a little bit. Ruth goes back to working in the field. Boaz goes back to overseeing things. But he has a chance to process this again. How is he going to respond to this woman who is lower than his servant? And we pick the conversation back up at supper time. At mealtime, Boaz said to her, Come over here, have some bread, and dip it in the wine vinegar. When she sat down with the harvesters, he offered her some roasted grain. She ate all she wanted and had some left over. As she got up to glean, Boaz gave orders to his men. Let her gather among the sheaves and don't reprimand her. Even pull out some stalks for her from the bundles and leave them for her to pick up and don't rebuke her. So Ruth gleaned in the field until evening. Then she threshed the barley she had gathered and it amounted to about an ephah. So 
All through this passage, we're seeing over-the-top grace. Come and sit with me. Eat what I'm eating. Take your leftovers home. Gather extra grain. And she takes home about an ephah. So just to give you a picture of about how generous that is, the average ration for a working man with grain was about one to two pounds per day. That was a pretty standard ration for a working servant. An ephah would amount to about 30 to 50 pounds. So just overabundant, lavish grace. And Ruth carried it back to town. And her mother-in-law saw how much she had gathered. Ruth also brought out and gave her what she had left over after she had eaten enough. Her mother-in-law asked her, Where did you glean today? Where did you work? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. And this is another instance where the author draws out the tension. Another sort of classic movie moment. Ruth knows where she worked, but she doesn't know the significance of whose field it was. Naomi knows about Boaz, but she doesn't know whose field Ruth worked in. And this verse is just set up to delay the gratification for that as long as possible. It's actually a little bit awkwardly structured in order to draw it out and to get the people to lean in and listen It draws out the conclusion or the peace falling into place to the last word of the sentence. Then Ruth told her mother-in-law about the one whose place she had been working. The name of the man I worked with today is Boaz, she said. The Lord bless him, Naomi said to her daughter-in-law. He has not stopped showing his kindness to the living and the dead, she added. That man is our close relative. He is one of our guardian redeemers. Then Ruth the Moabite said, He even said to me, Stay with my workers until they finish harvesting all my grain. Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, It will be good for you, my daughter, to go with the women who work for him, because in someone else's field you might be harmed. So Ruth stayed close to the women of Boaz to glean until the barley and wheat harvests were finished, and she lived with her mother-in-law. So many weeks pass. They arrive. This first encounter happens when the harvest is beginning and Ruth stays close until the harvests of barley and wheat are finished. Several weeks of time. Maybe months pass here. and We've been given all this information and we've seen the sparks fly. Boaz notices this beautiful foreigner shows grace. Ruth accepts. Naomi jumps for joy. The food problem is solved. And surely we who are reading this can see the breadcrumbs that are being dropped for how this family problem may be solved. But the author plays a little bit with us again. The first chapter was sort of tragedy and loss and pain and heartbreak and sorrow, but it ends on a note of hope. And it's sort of funny to me that the last verse here, the last phrase here, doesn't carry quite the same punch. And she lived with her mother-in-law, doesn't have the same sort of attention-grabbing hope to it, But even though the action is stalled here for a little bit, the connection has been made, the seeds are planted, the soil is right, and the author is saying, hold on, be patient. We'll get there. But for now, status quo. Ruth and Naomi live together. And of course, we know there are two more chapters left, but we'll have to wait a bit. Actually, it just so happens that Darren gets to preach the next chapter on Valentine's Day weekend. And I don't know exactly what angle he's going to take, but the chapter certainly contains some interesting tips on how to win over your sweetheart or entice your crush into marriage. But <laughs> we're going to wait till next week for that. And in the time that we have left the day, what I want to do 
is talk about God in this story. Because just like last week, the author, the narrator, doesn't actually mention God once. And yet, it's my opinion that the fingerprints of God are all over this chapter. We see God working in the it-just-so-happens and the just-thens. And in addition, we see God reflected clearly in the character and the choices of Boaz. And generally, when we read our Bible... As Christians, Old Testament or New Testament. We talked about this a little bit in our Psalm series. When we read our Bibles, we should always be asking ourselves as we read, where's Jesus in this? What does this teach me about the character of God? What does this teach me about God's plan for salvation? What does this teach me about the gospel? And what stands out to me here is the character of Boaz and his relationship with Ruth. And we can actually look at this in two different ways. The first way that we can look at this is that we can see ourselves in this story as Ruth. When we read or listen to the story, when we engage with it in the context of the gospel, of what Jesus has done for us, one way that we can look at this story is that Boaz here represents the character of God, that Boaz sort of stands in this story as kind of a pre-Messiah, as an example of who we know is to come. And that we are Ruth, who are receiving that blessing or that gift. So looking at Boaz, we can see several ways that he shows uh, his mercy and his love. First, Boaz seeks the outcast as family. Ruth shows up uninvited, unknown to Boaz, an outsider from a foreign land, and yet Boaz draws her in. He calls her daughter, and he makes her part of his family. And then looking for Jesus here, we can see Jesus is the perfecter of that, that Jesus offers perfect protection and perfect rest and perfect peace, that Jesus calls us a family, that he invites us to the table, that he brings the outsider into the wedding feast. Paul says in Romans 8 that we are God's children. We are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. We who were outsiders have been brought to the table not just as servants, but as family, as brothers and sisters with Christ. Second, Boaz shelters the weak. In a society that could be harsh and rude and condescending and even violent towards outsiders, towards foreigners, towards women, Boaz says, stay in my fields. I will protect you. Stay here with me and I will keep you safe. I will shelter you. I will make sure that you are treated properly. He says in verse 12, may you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. And whether Boaz fully understands it or not, He is being those wings of refuge through his choices, his decisions. God is working out his plan to provide shelter through Boaz. And again, we can look to Jesus and recognize that Jesus is perfect shelter. He's our perfect protector. He takes what Boaz can offer and becomes the highest, most perfect form of it. John 10, 28 says, I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. Perfect protection. The third thing is this, that Boaz serves the hungry at his table. He invites Ruth to sit. He gives her good food. He says, drink of the water my men have prepared. He sends her home with more than enough. We think of ourselves as Ruth here, and we recognize that God, through the gospel, through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, gives us perfect satisfaction, fulfills us in a way that bread and water never can. Jesus says that those who drink of water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water I give him will never thirst. 
Instead, the water Jesus gives us will become in us a fount of water springing up to eternal life. Jesus is the perfect provider of food, of sustenance. And the fourth is this. Boaz showers the needy with his grace. He's gracious and compassionate to Ruth. He doesn't show anger, but he's rich in love and he's abounding in mercy. Do those characteristics remind you of anyone? Once again, reflected in Boaz, we see the mercy of God and God gives perfect, ultimate mercy that can never be taken away, that goes beyond borders or people groups, beyond culture or gender or social status and it covers everyone. Jesus Christ, as the perfect sacrifice, the universal Savior, becomes the perfect example of the sort of grace we see in Boaz here. So we can see ourselves as Ruth, as the one who has been brought into this field, who has been chosen by God, and God tells us, stay here, cling to me. Don't go to other fields, don't go looking in other places for food or for belonging, or for sustenance, or for shelter, or for grace. Don't go to the field of status. Don't go to the field of self-indulgence, or to the field of social media, or to the field of addiction, or to these other fields in your life. Stay here, and I will call you family, and I will shelter you, and I will feed you, and I will give you perfect grace. And as we begin to understand that, and as we read the story in that way, and as we recognize that we are chosen, something incredible happens. It actually empowers us and gives us the foundation to go back and read the story again and look for the opportunity to be Boaz. Look for the opportunity to go out and make a difference in people's lives. We can see ourselves as Boaz, who shows God's love to others. The verse from Isaiah that is in the bulletin comes from a much longer section on true fasting and what it really means, what it really looks like to serve God, what it looks like to honor him, what it looks like to be in relationship with him. God says, I could care less if you skip a meal, if you're not getting this right. So I'm just going to read a slightly longer section from that passage. And Isaiah speaks for the Lord here and says, is not this the kind of fasting that I have chosen? To loose the chains of injustice and untie the cords of the yoke, to set the oppressed free and break every yoke. Is it not to share your food with the hungry? And to provide the poor wanderer with shelter when you see the naked to clothe them and not to turn away from your own flesh and blood. And as a result of this sort of behavior of true fasting, we see what happens in verse 8 and 9. Then your light will break forth like the dawn and your healing will quickly appear. Then your righteousness will go before you and the glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. Then you will call and the Lord will answer. You will cry for help and he will say, here am I. I read that scripture and I see Boaz. I see in this story him showing us the way to live a God-honoring life. What it means to be a man of standing. It's not about blind rule following. It's not about legalism. It's not about doing things for the sake of doing the right things or checking off a list. God calls us to fight for justice to share our food with the hungry, to provide the wanderer with shelter, to clothe the naked. This chapter of Ruth helps us to understand that God has chosen us. And when we can see and understand this story from Ruth's perspective, that we have been brought out of darkness, out of hopelessness, and into family and shelter, into our needs being met and into grace, then what that does 
is it gives us the ability to be a Boaz, to go out and look like Jesus to the people around us, to, as a church community, filled with the Holy Spirit, following the example of our Savior, continue to make and grow Pleasant Valley into a church where people feel like family, where people feel safe, where people can be fed physically, emotionally, spiritually, and where people experience deep and overabundant grace. Because we have been chosen, our choices matter. Because God is writing this story, there is really no such thing as just so happened. And because we are under the refuge of his wing, we can provide refuge for those around us. Amen?